This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Body to Burial. I'm Mariah. And I'm Nikki. We're just two regular true crime junkies who decided it was time to see crime from a new perspective. This is Body to Burial. Are you ready? This doozy of a guest I'm super pumped about. I'm ready now. So we are going to be talking to James R. Fitzgerald. He is an FBI profiler and a forensic linguist. You may be familiar with a couple of the cases that he's worked on. He worked on the Unabomber. His analysis of the written material from the Unabomber is what ultimately led to his capture. Really? Yeah, he's a person. He worked on the DC sniper case. He worked on the anthrax letters. He is quite amazing. He has written a three-part memoir series called A Journey to the Center of the Mind. He also, I don't know if you watched it, but the Manhunt Unabomber series on Netflix. No. That's about him. It's on my um it's on my Netflix queue or whatever it is. You need to go in and watch that. It's all about him and the work that he did deciphering the letters, basically building out a profile and catching the Unabomber. That is insane. So I am beyond stoked to talk to James and I highly suggest do yourself a favor, go order those books that he wrote, A Journey to the Center of the Mind. Can't wait to read the second one and go check them out. That's all I have to say about it. James, our format is pretty like conversational. So go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, James R. Fitzgerald here. Uh, Fitz is my lifelong nickname. Uh, I'm a retired FBI supervisory special agent. My specialty within the FBI, certainly the last two-thirds of my career, was as a criminal profiler and a forensic linguist. Before the FBI, I was a police officer in Ben Salem Township, Pennsylvania, and I was there for 11 years until leaving in 1987 to join the FBI. Retired in 07, and uh, I'm a consultant. I own a company, James R. Fitzgerald Associates, where I still do profiling and forensic linguistic work. I've written three books, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, books one, two, and three. Teach at California University of Pennsylvania in their graduate program in uh, forensic linguistics. And I also have an audio book named The Fitz Files, uh, Manhunt Unabomber, all about the... the, uh, the Discovery series now on Netflix and tied in with the real Unibom case. Yeah, folks, I've been kind of busy the last uh, 14 years or so in retirement. And uh, I'm glad to be here talking to you guys today. Well, thank you. We are so excited to talk to you with being both a profiler and a linguist. Which came first? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, they both kind of came together at the same time. I was technically trained as a profiler first, but within months of graduating that little FBI school, with my 17 colleagues, uh, all of a sudden I'm immersed in the world of forensic linguistics, promoted in 95 to uh, uh, the profiling unit, uh, and I did a 12-week, about 18 of us new profilers were in a 12-week school. Um, One of our instructors was John Douglas, and of course the current TV show, TV series, Mindhunter, is about his early career. They've changed names, of course. I was becoming a profiler in the spring of 95, and he was retiring from the FBI then. Yeah. Is your background 
Is that common? I don't like to brag or sound, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm puffing my own sail or whatever the expression is. But um, someone else pointed out to me once, I am the only accredited criminal profiler and forensic linguist in the world. That's incredible. And I say accredited, there's no certificate per se in profiling. But I do have a master's in psychology, but um, I am proud to be, um, I guess, that unique person who... uh, has a uh, trade craft in both of these fields, and they definitely do come together uh, in, in different types of cases I've worked. And I think why it's helped me be as successful as I have been in both of these fields. Is ling- linguistics, is that kind of like like you're looking at a manifesto or like a note or whatever, and is it kind of like solving a riddle? And then you can break it down into there's meaning behind the sentences and the words? Well, yes, and that's uh, semantics, that's syntax, uh, there's stylistics involved. So, so for your listeners, basically, linguistics is a scientific study of language. Uh, a lot of people think linguists speak multiple languages. I don't. I speak English, that's it. A little bit of Spanish. It's a scientific study of language. Of course, forensic in front of any discipline or science means arguing in the courts or uh, arguing the law, something like that. My area is sociolinguistics. And that is how language is used in society, how perhaps men and women communicate differently, how young and old communicate differently, how different parts of the country um, you know, have different accents, how different ethnic groups or racial groups communicate differently. And this is all speaking uh, you know, English, but it's not just the pronunciation of certain words. It's also the usage of certain words. Linguists have studied uh, over the last decade or so uh, that the, the bubbly a non-alcoholic drink that we all have. And I purposely didn't use the word soda or pop or Coke, but depending on what part of the country, those are the uh, predominant words for those items. And that can help link someone to a certain part of the country, at least where they grew up. Um, and these are dialectologists and, and people who study regionalism and, and variation within a language. So uh, it's not, you know, linguistics is not just someone looking at a, at a manifesto and trying to figure out who wrote it, which I did for months at a time and breaking down literally every word and every phrase and every sentence. But there's also other sort of aspects to the science that um, my, my fellow linguists apply. That's interesting because I never would think the Coke and pop and whatever else because, you know, I just think everybody says the same things. But like my friend from Wisconsin, she says like bag, bag. The way people say things is kind of the area that they live in, and I never really thought it works in profiling a person. Well, well, what gets tricky about that is our language features, our dialects are pretty much locked in by the time we reach puberty, and that's why this country does it wrong in teaching second languages. You know, we wait till the kids get to high school. Mm-hmm. In Europe, little kids are learning from five, even before that, and uh, and the brain is like a sponge for language. Um, you know, during that time frame. But to go back to what you just said is that um, the problem is you you can pick up all those regionalisms, which they're called, you know, someone says pop, someone says sneakers instead of tennis shoes. You have all these combinations, you know, a bubbler for a water fountain. I mean, all these types of things. And that's great. That gives you a lot of information. But what it really tells you is most likely where that person grew up. It doesn't tell you where they're living right now. Uh But it's still a clue. And it's still part of the uh, linguistic profile of that person. Growing up, did you like riddles and puzzles and like crossword puzzles and that sort of stuff? 
Absolutely. Uh, my mother taught me to play Scrabble at a very early age. Uh, I miss playing against her. She's long gone. But um, oh. she also got me into crossword puzzles. You know, the first, I hate to use the word adult book, but uh, I don't mean anything pornographic, but <laughs> the, the first book geared for an adult reader that I ever read was called Kidnap. Now, it's not the book Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's one word, Kidnap, and I'm drawing a blank on the author's name. But it came out in the early 60s, and it's about the early 1930s kidnapping of the baby of Charles Lindbergh, which happened not too far from where I grew up in the uh, right across the Delaware River in uh, Hopewell, New Jersey. My parents, you know, lived it. It was the case of the century for them. And uh, I would ask them questions about it. I probably watched like a special or something. And, and they said, why don't you go read a book on it? So I rode my bike to the Philadelphia Library and um, uh, the local branch and got that book out. And it, it just fascinated me. The different aspects of the investigation, wood analysis to money analysis to you know, fingerprints to language. And there was language involved because the suspect left a letter at the scene and wrote subsequent letters. And Charles Lindbergh even met with the suspect uh, in a cemetery in uh, New York City somewhere when he still thought his child was alive. Six months or so after the kidnapping, the baby was, you know, a mile or two away from the property in the shallow grave. Uh, so the baby never survived uh, the night of the kidnapping. But there's still money being paid, language being used. And this case just fascinated me. So I know you've worked a lot of incredible cases. Nikki and I, before you joined us, were talking about John Bonet. And they obviously had the ransom note there. So I know you were brought on later. Yeah, I don't talk about that case publicly anymore. There was a lawsuit involved. So a lot of information in that letter, I still teach from it. I don't get into who may have killed the little girl. Sure. I'm hoping someday that case is uh, is solved. But there's a lot of interesting linguistic information in the two-and-a-half-page uh, ransom letter itself. Typically, like when they realize that there's a ransom note, is somebody brought in right away? Or at what point is someone like you contacted to take a look at anything that has been left? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of people today, even with uh, different TV shows and documentaries, my books, everything else, they don't realize the value of language analysis. Yeah. Uh, some do. Some investigators will reach me, you know, shortly into an investigation. But others, it may be months down the line or even a year or two. Sometimes it's a cold case. I've worked cases 50 years old, five zero years old, with some documents involved and tried to help out. Other, a number of cases, you know, 25 years or so. And, of course, you go back that far. It's well before social media and the Internet. So it has to be almost captured on paper, maybe some kind of a recording if it's a voicemail from the 80s or something, not much before that. So, um, but I do, I do get involved, and um, it just depends on the knowledge base of the investigator. Uh, more and more people are learning about forensic linguists. There's only really about maybe a dozen of us in the U.S. that practice it on a regular basis. It's still a relatively, I suppose, unknown science, but it is a science. It's fully accredited, and we've been. Uh, our testimony in authorial attribution analysis, that is comparing the writing style and a set of question communications anonymous to the known writings of someone that's been accepted in the U.S. courts and other courts around the world. So I know that you also worked on the Unabomber case and worked extensively on his letters. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
the Unabomber had a bunch of letters he wrote starting in 1980, a ruse letter again, 85, a ruse letter. Then in 93, started writing um, to the New York Times and to another victim or so. And the media, the manifesto came out in June of 95. And that just so happens coincidentally when I showed up at the Unabomb task force. And here we have a treasure trove of language evidence. And I just went in kind of using common sense, investigative skill set, which I already had, brand new trained profiler. And all of a sudden, I'm in a 17-year-long case that had never been solved with, you know, standard forensic evidence. And I'm saying, wow, we, and we just happen to have this, uh, all these documents coming in? Well, let me focus on this. And um, I looked at the one letter from 85 and saw the hidden acrostic, that's a hidden message within the document. It came down the left-hand side, Dad, it is I. Uh, the bosses at Unibomb Task Force never saw never saw that before. None of their analysts saw it. I said, Fitz, where did you come up with this? Uh, on the plane ride on the way here. Well, you're in charge of all the documents from now on in this case. Well, I'm a profiler. I'm a behavioralist, but I, I guess I can focus on the language. Language always meant something to me. And here I had the 17-year-long case, and I'm the Unabomber wasn't that sort of writer. He rarely made mistakes. And I thought we had a mistake in you can't eat your cake and have it too. It was the rest of the world, English-speaking world, said you can't have your cake and eat it too, including songs by the Four Seasons, Bob Dylan. They use it that way. I thought, ah, I, made, I finally found a mistake of his. But it turns out he actually used the term or the proverb correctly uh, from uh, like 1500s, early modern English. So when you got those... Unabomber letters and you were on your flight, what's your process? You were, I mean, you literally cracked a code that they hadn't seen. Are you purposefully looking for stuff or did does something just pop off the page to you? What I would find myself doing is the first time I would look at it, I would not be reading for purposes of comprehension. I'm looking at it for purposes of evidence. I'm looking for unusual punctuation. I'm looking for uh, non-standard spellings. I'm looking for formatting issues. Um, you know, passive, active voice, pronoun usage. And, and I'm trying to balance all of this as I read it. And I may go through it again for some other uh, more specific, we'll say, punctuation features or, or word count or sentence length. And then maybe the third or fourth time around, I'll finally read it for purposes of comprehension. Instead, I have my yellow legal pad and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, taking notes, you know, with various, various columns on it, uh, on the legal pad in terms of what punctuation features or what other language features are, are significant to me, what may be autobiographical, what may be a, what, I, what I termed a contraindicator. I had a high school teacher threatened a few years ago, and the letter is, I may just be a girl, but you really make me mad in your math class, and I'm going to come and, you know, I'm going to punch you in the face someday. But, all right, uh, this is a boy who's writing this, because why give away this information about who you are? So we call that a contraindicator. So uh, that's how I look at these things uh, to begin with. Then finally, as I said, after multiple read-throughs, I will then read it for purposes of comprehending what the person is trying to say. When you're working on like cases like that, case where you're just looking at the same thing over and over again, do you clock out like where it's like, okay, I've spent enough time on this and then you just do your normal home life? How do you separate the two? A healthy law enforcement officer, they really have to learn how to have a demarcation line between work, professional life, and home, personal life. And I used to have a road mark when I was a police officer. I was a very short distance from the station. And I said, all right, when I see that sign, 
my brain starts thinking, depending what direction I'm going, leaving family, if I'm going to work, leaving family stuff behind for now and focusing on work and when going home, it's just the opposite. And um, I trained myself pretty well to do that. Now, it, it's never completely removed from your mind necessarily, but you don't want to bring it about with other people. So nowadays, my I, I have a home office. I realize about three hours at a time is the most I can do forensic linguistic analysis. Uh, I may come back for another hour or two, and then I'll, then that's the rest of the night I'm off. Uh, and I mean, we all put in marathon hours at different times in our careers. I, I certainly have back in the day. For this stage in life, uh, it's 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 usually not you know a crisis that has to be resolved you know within 48 hours or so when I'm being contacted. Do you think digital communications has changed your job? I've definitely seen a transition over the years. I mean, I in many of my cases in the early years involved handwritten letters that were sent through the mail. They are very very rare now, or even a handwritten letter left at a scene like the Ramsey you know, ransom letter. I mean, I think nowadays, and certainly text messaging, I think nowadays people have more access to writing. And, and back in the old days, you'd either sit at a typewriter uh, or, or or get a pad of paper and write your threatening communication and put it through the mail one way or the other. You could, you know, do an anonymous phone call, uh, but calls could be traced back then. And now, of course, everyone has, you know, or most times you get the the originating number in your cell phone, but um, but in a way, it's opened up many more doors. I I, I, uh, I wrote I wrote something once when I was doing some training. In the old days, there's like 12 separate steps I identified to putting a threatening communication into the mail. And you pull out the paper, you pull out the pen, you sit down, you write, you fold it up, you put an envelope, stamp, address, you know, go to the post office mailbox, you know, go they do their thing, and then it finally goes to your victim. Internet, power on. <laughs> Uh, write message, send. It's basically three steps. And I would interview people back in the day uh, when we arrested, who wrote some letters, and they would, you know, admit that yeah, I wrote a you know a bunch of other ones. I took them to the mailbox, but at the last second, I chickened out and just destroyed the letter, threw it away. And even anecdotally, I'm aware of situations like that. But nowadays, online, within um, you can do all of this in like 90 seconds. And there's the threatening communication. It's a federal violation. Because it went through, you know, the, the, you know, the, the internet, which is automatically interstate. Even if you're sending it to your neighbor, it's considered interstate. There's so many fewer chances to filter out uh, or 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 negate that sort of harmful, if not illegal, activity on your part. So um, we see a lot more of this now, and and people think of their anonymous or just have a screen name that doesn't list their actual name. In a way, it keeps us forensic linguists uh, even busier. Uh, in terms of looking at all these types of cases, because uh, everybody is communicating by written language now. What I rarely work is on spoken language cases. I've worked on a few over the years in the FBI and, and even in with my business now, James R. Fitzgerald Associates. Um, uh, you know, someone will have a recorded voicemail they received, and I'll do some work on that. But I'm, I'm not a dialectologist. I'm not a, phono- a phonologist, but I will bring in people who are. But most of my work is written communications, and most of it comes somewhere off of the Internet, uh, one venue, one format or another. There are any important takeaways for our listeners or any last words that you would have? Digital language nowadays is out there forever. I know some celebrities find this out and politicians uh, the hard way sometimes. And uh, 
and especially to younger people, if you put it online, uh, consider it there forever. I always say, if you don't want, if you wouldn't want your mother reading this post or this email, <laughs> you may want to, may want to not send it, including with whatever attachments you have hooked to it. I don't want to come across like an old grandpa or something telling people <laughs> this stuff, just, just to be aware of that. And, and there are clues in language, uh, how it's spoken, how it's written. And, um, and even when people try to dumb down or disguise, again, that experience, linguists will pick up on it. It's much easier to insert purposeful mistakes into a written communication than it is to hide or disguise your lifelong writing habits. And that's the bread and butter of forensic linguists. Even if someone tries to uh, disguise their writing style, it's uh, it's really hard to hide who you are. So uh, just be cautious about that when you're considering threatening someone. And here's even a better <laughs> idea. Just don't bother threatening anyone. So, Tim, these are just fun, silly questions that we kind of ask our guests. What song would be the perfect theme song for your job? Huh. Every Step You Take by the Police. Uh, because it's, if you listen to it, it's a cute song about a guy who loves his lady. He's a friggin' stalker. And every case I work involves some level of stalking. It may be romantic involved. It may be professional. Uh, and um, so in a way, if there's any song that reminds me of my work, it's that one. And thank you, Sting, for writing it. And you make it sound kind of romantic and sexy, but... Uh, no, you don't follow a woman around and uh, and do what uh, the song lyrics suggest. <laughs> That's a good one. That's the best thing. What are your decompressing hobbies? Workout, which includes bike riding and swimming. And um, and lately I've gotten back into model trains. Ooh, I had them as ooh. a little kid. They stayed in boxes for more decades than I care to admit. But where I live now, uh, there's a community of other people. We went online. We all, we have about 25 of us have this interest and uh, we've recently put together a big display, eight foot by 40 foot display with my trains on it, some old buildings. It's really cool. I enjoy writing too. I've written three books in five years. That's my New Year's resolution to have my fourth book out by this time next year. If you were at a dinner party and you didn't want to spend the evening talking about your job, what job would you tell people you do? That's a good question because when I was in the FBI, I would never tell people I didn't know what I did. So if I didn't trust the people at all, I always said I was a cost accountant. Who do you work with? Oh, how do we cheat them and how? You know, something like that. I was still sizing someone up and I would talk and they said, oh, so what do you do? I'm with the government. Oh, oh, and, you know, a little more conversation. Uh, what, uh, what uh, The city, federal. Who do you work for in the feds? Uh, Department of Justice. Oh, you a lawyer? No. And at this time, it's like at least 10 minutes have gone by and I'm sizing the person up. And the next question, I would say either FBI or ah, just DOJ, then walk away And if I just didn't want to say anything more. If you could interview any serial killer, who would it be? Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't like these people. Well, I'll tell you what. I've tried twice to interview Ted Kaczynski. He was a serial killer. Mm -hmm. He is a serial killer. And, um, yeah, I like to get inside his mind. Uh, uh, try to put in my book. Uh, first, both times I tried to uh, uh, um, interview him. The first time um, I was invited to the Air Force Academy in Colorado to do, teach, do some training out there. This is the last year in the FBI, 2007 for me. And I realized that Florence, Colorado, where Kaczynski was being held, was like maybe 50 miles from there. So I reached out to the warden. They put me in touch with the uh, correctional officer, blah, blah, blah. I want to interview Kaczynski. Can you set it up? 
Well, we have to get his approval. Yes, he approved. He knows who I was. Florence, Colorado Penitentiary is the supermax. The worst of the worst are there. They are in their cells 23 7, 365 by themselves. They get an hour to uh, work out, get a shower, back in the cell. All their meals are delivered there. So that's what everyone's life is like in the supermax. So I finish up my training at the Air Force Academy, jump in the car, halfway there, get a call on the cell phone, Agent Fitzgerald, yes. Uh, this is Officer so-and-so at Florence, yes. Unfortunately, um, your interview with Mr. Kaczynski will not take place today. Okay. And in fact, he wants me to give a specific message to you. Okay. What's that message, sir? Agent Fitzgerald, I'd like to do the interview today, but unfortunately, I'm busy. Maybe some other time. He probably thought I flew all the way out from Virginia just to see him. And my whole trip was now a waste because he knew who I was. Just about when I uh, disconnected on my cell phone, I see a sign ahead of me, Pikes Peak. So I made a quick turn off the exit and I climbed Pikes Peak in my car. And I always look back saying I had a better day that day than Ted Kaczynski did any day uh, since he's been in prison. So uh, you're lost, Ted, that we didn't get a chance to talk. <laughs> so he would have been my guy. And who knows if I'll get a third chance. If he listens to this or some of his followers do, tell him I'm, uh, I'd still be glad to talk to him if I'm not busy. It's wild that they have like followers and like groupies and it just that blows my mind. He never had a woman in his life. He's probably an early incel guy. You familiar with incel, involuntary celibacy? No. You and your listeners can look up, and I've done some research into it. Kaczynski never claimed to be a part of this incel movement. Having read all his writings, especially on the cabin, he probably is. However, where I was going with this, I, he never had a woman in life. He never had sex, and that really frustrated him. Of course, he goes and lives in a cabin in the middle of the woods in Montana. <laughs> That's part of his problem. Yeah. He finally met a woman. She was some kind of a journalist. She visited him in prison. They became pen pals. They were engaged to be married. What? Yep. And the federal system and Supermax, there's no conjugal visits. You're always speaking on a phone, looking through plexiglass. And that's all this woman ever had with them. They fell in love. And then this is the sad part of the story. And I mean this. She was diagnosed with cancer. And I think within a year, she died. Really? She was a relatively young woman. And, uh, and he was apparently devastated by that. And no jokes here or anything. I, I feel... For him and certainly her in that regard. But yeah, I think if this guy could have gotten a girlfriend earlier in life, there'd be a lot more people alive and yeah. uninjured. But uh, I'm not blaming the women of the world. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh. One last final, very silly question for you. Do you like ice water or room temp? Oh, wow. That's an easy one. Room temp. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I love it. My kind of person. <laughs> I like ice water. <laughs> Make sure that's on your uh, profile and your dating profile. And... <laughs> All right. I think we did it, guys. All right, ladies. Well, uh, again, great talking to both of you. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. I guess I didn't really understand like what a linguist was. Didn't know what I was getting into. So I guess I wrote down a couple things that I thought were really interesting. Thought when he talked about like the fact that he doesn't know multiple languages, like I would like natural assumption, like he said, I would expect a linguist to be able to speak like 10 languages. I thought so too. But I also did think it was really interesting that he brought up that like in the US, like we make the fatal mistake of like not teaching our kids foreign languages when they're younger. 
because like my girlfriend, her daughter, she'll be 12 at the end of August. The mom's Korean and her dad is Russian. So she legitimately can speak Korean, Russian and English. And she's 12. Oh, wow. Like fluently. Yeah, we're trying to do that with um, the kids because my nephew in China and all we have is um, Zhao Shang Hao Bao Bei. Well, what does that mean? You sound fluent. Good morning, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it sounds great. Like we have other things written down. um, And there's like, like, good afternoon. Wang Zhang Hao Bao Bei. Ah, Good afternoon. You're you're shocking me. I would think you are fluent. Literally, if anyone wants to keep talking, I would have no clue. Yeah. No. You've said your good morning greeting, and that's about as far as we're going. Yeah. You should get the Duolingo app. Like, Wyatt's using it. He's going to go on a trip with Will, and so they're learning French. But it's it's awesome. It starts off really simple, one words, and then as you progress, it'll get, like, harder, and you can start to formulate sentences. So you should put it on the phone for the kids, I think. Nice. I I could, je m'appelle Nikki. There you go. uh, (laughs) Look, you've got three languages. Como estas? Four. What else you got? (laughs) But I don't think we're going to be fluent anytime soon. But, yeah, I don't think I'll be a linguist. Takes time. The brain is able to absorb it when you're younger versus when you're older. So it's just, it's interesting that we wait until like high school to offer foreign language. It's weird. I liked how he could like, where you could do the region, you know, like. Yes, like the dialect, like pop. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, because that is like a thing, like especially moving from California to the South, pop and soda and Coke, like that is something that every person like has a hill that they'll die on that it's like, this is called. What do they call it in Tennessee? I've heard pop a lot. Pop. Jay and I always get into arguments about it. She's from Chicago and they call it pop. It's just pop. Okay. But I'm like, it's a Coke or a Diet Coke. Like, it's, it's specific, folks. It's a Sprite or a 7-Up. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't. Like, I want some Dr. Pepper. A pop could be anything. Like, what kind of pop you want? I don't know. I guess then you, you have to get a follow-up, a question. It's just more work. Uh, Where I feel yeah, like we get to me. the point. But we're California people, so it's like we're quick. We don't want a lot of combo. I was watching Batman, and I was thinking, like, the new one. Have you seen it? No, I haven't watched it yet. I'm worried about Rob Patterson. Just, I don't know that I can get past Edward. No, you can't. He's good. I liked it. Okay. He's a very emotional Batman. But there was also, like, where he had to decipher, like, the Riddler's stuff. Okay, fun. And it reminded me of, like, linguist. Yeah. Like, clues, like, within within like these letters and and he had to break down different codes and so it kind of reminded me of that I don't think it's as close to a linguist in real life but it sure. kind of like was like a lot I thought like along those lines I would hate that I would hate that like I hate riddles I just don't like it my brain doesn't like think that way yeah. and I get so yeah. frustrated but it's funny because Fritz's memory with his mom of playing Scrabble I hate Scrabble Hate it. You're like the person that does cat. Oh, 100%. And the. (laughs) I like a puzzle that all my pieces are in front of me. Like I love real puzzles. I can't do a mental word puzzle. No, I would just want to punch a wall, to be honest. And that's like the hard thing, like the Zodiac. Like how do you decipher something that is someone's own code? Well, and it's personal. Exactly. You know, like it's maybe like clues of their upbringing or whatever. We should have asked him because even like the clue that he found in the Unabomber letters, like what does that even mean? How is that even a clue? Okay, great. I found this like riddled 
phrase, but now what? Now another puzzle? No, thank you. Then that just leads you to another rabbit hole. I'm more an instant gratification person. Like that's why I think I could do like blood splatter. You're going to look at that. You're going to know most likely it's this. I don't have like 10 billion options of what hole to go chase down. Like I wouldn't be able to sleep. Like I don't, that's the other part of Fritz's job is like, you just go home and you stop. Like my brain would be, I'd be in the shower washing my hair being like, what, what did that mean? Like I would never be able to stop. I think I would be like one of those psycho people who has like the wall of like words and like with the string and like trying to make it all connect. I would go insane. Like constantly with a pen in your mouth. Yes. Like, and you know, it's my pen because I chew the ends. The other thing that is, I don't know, challenging, I think now in this age is like he had said, like before there were like 12 steps before you sent a letter. Right. And now it's like, you're fucking, excuse my language, you're mad and you're gonna, you know, rattle off an email or whatever and fire it off all within under five minutes. You know, so it's like a lot of the times these people had like this length of time to be like, oh, do I really want to send this? Do I want to do this? Do it, you know, whereas nowadays, like, let's just think about how many of like, let's go back to my dating years. How many people received a not so nice text message? You know, like you just in the heat of the moment, like fire things off. Seriously. It probably prevented some people from actually doing stuff. Whereas nowadays, I feel like by the time you feel that remorse, You've already sent it. Yeah. You can't, you can't go track it down. Yeah, it's already gone. I just think it's interesting how you can take a piece of paper and figure out enough about them to kind of narrow it down. Yeah, I think it's cool. I mean, and it's, I mean, what was that story? They like tried to disclose the identity. Like I may just be a boy. So I think it's funny that they can pick up intentional misleadings. Like I'm, I may think, oh, that's weird that they're saying a they're a boy, they're giving themselves away. But I don't know that I would like make the assumption that like they're trying to throw me off the trail. His brain has to like approach things differently, you know? Like I didn't really realize what an art his job is. Like it's very niche. Yeah. I didn't expect it to like where your case could go on for so long. What if you're waiting years for another clue? I don't know. Because I mean, like the Zodiac, weren't those pretty frequently? Because weren't they being in the paper or something? Yeah, something like that. And then I had heard like who has solved it. It was just like a normal person that does, that loves like crossword puzzles and like does like the like Sunday paper and they deciphered, right? I hate crossword puzzles. Well, I think that was a good one. I learned a lot. So yeah. Yeah. Massive respect for what he does. He has an incredible amount of patience and like an intellect that I would never... I don't possess. No, I don't want to play Scrabble with him. Oh my God. He would be so frustrated (laughs) playing Scrabble with me. He'd be like, the best you can do is at. (laughs) Seriously. But I would like to do the like letter challenge. We may have to circle back and see if he's going to play that. would be pretty cool. Because I really would love to see like, let's both read this. You tell me what stands out to you and I'll, what stands out to us. I think that would be such a fun game. We're going to have to ask him because that would be such a fun little challenge. That'd be a fun little game. Yeah. Perfect. Let's do it. All right. Okay. Well, this is good. Okay. I can't wait for next week. We're on a roll. We're speeding. That's right. Speeding along. <laughs> okay. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.